0: All right, Jake, welcome to the podcast. Oh, man. This nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly, and then I'll feed you some questions? Yeah. Um, I'm Jake Edwards. I'm Brayden's
1: housemate, and I am a recent Biola graduate. Um, I suppose that's all the important stuff. <laughs>
0: not an important person. Yes. No, I'm not. I'm, yes, that's the, right. that's the key word. Uh... So the question I want to ask you is what what have you enjoyed about your education at Biola, and um, yeah, what what are the best things that is provided for you? Hmm. Yeah, I think um, the education
1: at Biola is unique because of how uh, biblical it is. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of really good private Christian colleges out there um, that are Christian, yeah, Christian, um, but. The way that Biola's, uh, I think, and this might be because of the Bible minor as well as uh, in Tory kids read the Bible, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just a really high level of biblical literacy. And mm-hmm. so I think um, I've found that, like the education has been great, but the thing that has supplemented my education in a way that I don't think any other college provides is the way that I have biblical biblically literate friend groups. Mm. Um, and I can talk about like, the Bible or theology or my faith and that there's a kind of a a common understanding that we all know Right what's going on and, and what's happening in the mm-hmm. Bible Um, and I feel like you can have a lot of well-intentioned Christians on a campus doing good things mm-hmm. but the kind of conversation is limited by um, Like a lack of knowledge about the first things uh-huh. about Christianity or, or about the Bible. And, yeah, and so th- conversations end up just being shallow, right? Um, but because of the biblical literacy at, at Biola's campus, I think conversations are able to be pushed into deeper uh deeper kind of spheres. And, yeah. yeah. And you can talk about uh like kind of real stuff. Yeah. Um and more complex conversations. Right.
0: When the baseline level of knowledge is higher, it means that any given conversation could go deeper. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And do you feel like that is um like is that was that crucial to your education? And your personal life? Or like, was it more one or the other? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, um, clarification. I'd probably would say I,
1: it's, it was probably more so, um, significant for my personal life. Uh-huh. I did make a, I remember making it like a, an education level decision, um, to go, where to go for my undergrad. I was looking at Wheaton, uh, in Illinois. Mm-hmm which is a super solid private Christian college. And I really liked how um, they, they are. They kind of, it, it seemed prestigious um, in the sense that everybody was working hard. Everybody had good grades kind of across the school. It was like a very, um, every, everybody studied all the time. And that was just something that they prided themselves on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I pr- took my my visit to Biola, I was really hoping to find something um I needed something that would challenge me, um, yeah. scholastically. Mm-hmm. But I was also—I don't think I realized, like, until I came to Viola that I could get the like the challenging um, scholarship in the Tory, on the Tory side of things. But uh-huh. that I actually wanted to have like friends who had like time to do other things than, <laughs> than just study. <laughs> yeah, and so I—I uh, I think when I initially came, I thought like, Oh, awesome. I'll like, I'll do the Tory thing. And then I'll just have like what a quote unquote normal friends and like, I'll uh-huh. do normal things okay. that like, a college student would do. Yeah. And, um, I kind of just thought I would have like these two separate lives. And, um, I, I, I banked in on Tory being really good for my education.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then I would just like live a normal college student life, and uh-huh. like, whatever, um, with, with non tory friends. And I think I, I was really surprised at how, um, smart a lot of my non-tory friends that sounds like so pretentious but <laughs> how how really smart a lot of my non-tory friends are and how they push me back into the word uh-huh. and so it ended up being this like really uh awesome dynamic where my personal life was consistently solid in yeah. terms of like people that knew the word but um i wouldn't have chosen that for myself if i didn't feel like biola could have provided me like a challenging education right um, in tory okay um, so does that I yeah yeah, that really yeah. Your question well
0: and also the question I asked was like is that more educational or personal life and I, as I was saying that I'm like well ideally probably it should be both right mm-hmm. like those are intertwined yeah, yeah, so yeah. Um, so say more about Tory the interaction between Tory and the Bible uh, major because this is something I when I had Hogan on I was really interested to hear his perspective on but like mm. how how are those two, um, interacting and like, is there one that you prefer? Um, is one more helpful towards the other, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think, um, I think there is a good relationship between Tori and the Bible major, at least as a student. I know that like the faculties, um, I'm not sure if they like, get on well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's, there like, beef. Yeah. But <laughs> I do know, I've heard of some Bible faculty that are, uh, that, that don't love the way that Tory takes kids out of kind of the preliminary Bible classes. But I never found myself at a loss. Um... There was there were never any classes that I came into and was like I, I have no clue what's going on here. despite it's not like the prereqs.
0: It's not like going into calculus three and you haven't taken yeah, calculus yeah. one and two. Yeah, <laughs> no, right,
1: you you can you can pretty easily piece together what they learned in a more systematic lecture-based approach, as opposed to what you learned in a um, like a Tory session uh, or Tory sessions that were supplemented by uh, things like the hermeneutics conference, right. um, which I do think. We as a Bible major, we really need as a Bible major that is also in Tory, we really need hermeneutics Conference to kind of like in a a very clear way lay out exactly what we're doing in terms of interpretation. Yeah. So that we're all on the same page. Right. Um you you'd need that on Tory, the Tory side of things and the Bible side of things. Right. Um But I I think I really, really appreciate the way Tori got me into the texts themselves. Um both the biblical texts and the the like the theology um Mm -hmm. the people who are writing about the bible um Mm -hmm. there i just don't think that there's a substitute for that and as good as some of the classes are in the bible major at talking about the texts they don't get you in the texts like
0: it does Um, well and with some of the classes a lot of the classes are going to be like third like not primary source not secondary source but like Third source, tertiary source, because they're talking about a theologian who's talking about the Bible.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. We we do a lot of like doctrine level theology, mm-hmm. um, so you wouldn't even they wouldn't even say it's like tertiary in that sense. It okay. would be you're just talking about the doctrine of election. And the, the interesting part is we don't do a lot of like, at least in my experience. I don't do a ton of like citing sources in the Bible major uh-huh. where it's like, well, Calvin believed this and uh-huh. Arminius believed that. Like we don't, you don't actually parse out a whole lot of like where these ideas came from. Okay. Um, they kind of teach one theology um, and, and a few of like kind of the reformed evangelical tradition and then a few of the um, various ways that might look, but they don't really parse out like, okay, and this is like Martin Luther did this. Okay you'll do that in like your historical theology class, but that is way more just kind of like getting the historical field of what happened. But in, in all of your other theology classes, it's pretty much just doctrine level, or or I guess we do have, um, like some more biblical studies classes where you're like looking at the book and then synthesizing what it says. Uh But oftentimes those classes don't demand you to, to read it with the attention level that you would have to in Tory. Right. Um, and so yeah, the, the Tory side of things was invaluable because I, I feel like I I got to actually read everything for myself and nobody is telling me like what it said, but I, Uh I get to judge, um, in some sense what commentators or theologians, what what judgments they are making about those texts because I'm the one reading them myself and talking about them and and that refines a lot of my thought.
0: Okay. Um, Do you feel like that because of your, that, uh, education, which Dr. Eisen has described it as like learning to chew. hmm. So like... You're learning how to chew your food right Yeah, that's a good way. um so do you feel like taking that and applying it in the bible courses did that kind of counter any of the like things that the professors were teaching were there ever times that you like oh i i read that very differently and you seem to be pushing this one viewpoint um but i kind of disagree because of this did that happen very often
1: no, uh, it, I mean it happens, right. but usually it's not on things that are so big that I have to like make a huge stand for yes. it. Or, yeah, You know that that's the interesting thing about the Bible major, and I guess Tori as well. I mean, I haven't hardly taken any tests. Um, yeah. In my entire time at Biola, right? It's all, a lot of it is written work, and so um, people are pretty, uh, profs are pretty gracious towards or respectful of when you want to make an interpretive claim. Okay. About a text and say, "This is my evidence. This is uh-huh. this is what I why I, I see it differently, and here's how it is working in this bigger argument that I'm trying to make." Uh-huh. Um, I think they're actually really receptive to people making good arguments for, mm-hmm. for things that are maybe outside of the purview of what they taught, um, and usually they're all they aren't like surprised by those either. Uh, we just have really, right. really smart props that are like, "Oh, interesting!" And they're really good. Oftentimes, at directing you towards. Other really big scholars that have taken that same interpretive gotcha. um, decision, yeah, and so they can kind of say like, "Well, if you're if you're going to go this way, you should definitely look at you know Bachum because of he he also thinks the same way and and he has some good resources for this, um, but I haven't found I have really had to do that a whole lot uh-huh. uh, usually because it's it's not a, a super big deal at right. least for the assignments or papers that I'm writing
0: right, um, so kind of as in undergrad, you're kind of saying like, okay, well, it's more just about like learning and putting all these ideas in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then can you talk a little bit about what you're going to do for, um, for grad school and like what you were saying the other day about your, uh, kind of research yeah. topic?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, every, every grad program looks different. I mm-hmm. um, should just say that off the bat, but uh, the grad program that I'm doing at Cambridge um, is an infill in religion, philosophy of religion, and theology. Mm-hmm. Which is basically a way of saying this is a really big program with a very diverse faculty. Mm-hmm. But the concentration that I'll be in is in Christian theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a far more uh, refined and and defined faculty. And it, it means the things that I'm going to be learning are going to be... Um, more patterned after uh, things that are relevant for Christian theology not just religion yeah,
0: in general Yeah. Um,
1: but my my program is nine months um, so it, it's not accelerated uh, the UK just does shorter programs huh. um, and uh, yeah so I'll, I'll get spit out with a master's in, in nine months if I that's now, awesome <laughs> which is awesome <laughs> yeah. uh, but it is it's technically a top master's so there are courses and modules that I'm going to be uh, in with professors that make me write papers and all of that. Yeah. But uh, it's pretty research driven. Okay. And so it, I kind of like to think of it as um, I'm writing a, a thesis or a dissertation is what they call it. And that's supplemented by some classes. Whereas most master's programs are uh, you take classes and it kind of culminates in a dissertation or a thesis. Hmm. Um, and so uh, when, when I... Uh, applied to Cambridge, I had to propose uh, a thesis. And uh, basically, the the research question that I said I was interested in was um, looking at Genesis 1 through 3, um, specifically 1 through 2, because I believe that there are uh, good creation dynamics. That mm-hmm. it, I, that's I don't know if that's a technical term. I just kind of made it up. <laughs> uh, but there are quote unquote good creation dynamics that the Lord has set up in Genesis one through two as things that are patently good Mm -hmm. about the way he's created things. Um, and my argument or my, my belief is that in Genesis three, those same good creation dynamics are limited uh, or broken or fractured in some way, uh, by the effects of the fall. Mm -hmm. Um, and the hope is, or the, the idea is that, um, if we, if we look at the fall as the unique and kind of, um, the, the kind of the center of gravity for everything that's wrong, which mm-hmm. sounds like everyone. I think we all agree. Yeah, with most that. Christians, right? Yeah. But are, I, I yeah. actually think we don't. Um, we all say that, and I'm not sure how much we we follow that out um, in our theology. Okay, say more about um, that. They, basically, uh, I'm, I'm trying to do most most people. It's kind of a, a this this proposal is kind of a way into a much bigger thought project that I've been having Great. for a long time. Um, and it's, it's really tied up in the doctrine of God.
0: Um, okay. And so, so making little, it, you know, little detail, minor, minor thing,
1: but it's making, um, what I, what I found is for the most part, for the most part, Christians believe the same things about God. Um, but sometimes mean different things when we say things about God. Okay. Um, uh-huh. And I don't know that that's necessarily problematic for salvation or anything like that. Yeah, um, But I do think it uh, like the way a Calvinist says God is good and the way a Arminian on like the total opposite side says God is good. Mm-hmm. Um, if we fleshed out what how both of those people are <laughs> defining good we'd find some things that um, are not like necessarily problematic but that are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and might equip a Calvinist to be um better at explaining God's goodness for people in the church in a way that's comforting to them but would maybe not be the person you'd send to talk to non-Christians about God's yeah. goodness <laughs> yeah because uh well you just find that there's not many Calvinists that are apolog- apologists right their definition of goodness doesn't usually stand up in the the court of law if you will right. for for philosophy and and people who are on the outside looking in mm-hmm. whereas an Armenian um or a molinist like william Lane craig yeah has a definition of goodness that is compatible with the world's understanding of goodness uh-huh. and so all, all that to say uh, it, i i've been thinking a lot about um trying to create not create but to th- synthesize um and and kind of release some of the tensions between some of the doctrines of god and mm-hmm. um, asking questions about what needs to be done and a lot of it I feel like has been coming back to Genesis one through three, okay. and understanding um, what God is doing in Genesis one through three, uh, and I, I've realized a lot of my own personal convictions about what's happening in Genesis one through three are different than um, the, I don't know if I could say the majority of of Reformed evangelical uh-huh. thinkers, um, but I I kind of I kind of consistently am willing to say I'm I'm on the outside looking in uh, when it comes to how we're reading Genesis. Okay. And it's usually not major things like did Adam and Eve sin? Like right, yeah, <laughs> It's yeah. nothing like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more subtle things like um, could Adam and Eve have not sinned? Um, right. And that is a really hard question for people to answer for some reason. Um, yeah. And I think it has some major fallout in terms of like what we believe about God as a creator and what we believe about God as a just God or a good uh-huh. God. Um, if he, if he always intended for them to sin right. or if, or if he didn't really intend for them to sin, but there was also really no way for them not to, yeah. um,
0: and, and cause we were talking about this a little bit the other day, but you, you're, I'm going to oversimplify and then right. you can yeah. correct. Yeah. You're saying that like probably most people think that, um, Adam and Eve necessarily had to sin. And you would probably say, no, that God created these, like you said, good creation dynamics and expected is the wrong word, but like maybe hoped to, that it would continue that way. Yeah. And then the fall was, was not a, like an expected thing, quote unquote, but yeah. a, a tragedy.
1: It was a tragedy precisely right. because God gave them all of the things they needed to persist in the garden um, uh-huh. without a fall, uh-huh. and and that's what makes the fall tragic. Is if it, if, if I don't I don't know that I totally understand tragedy uh, right. as an idea. Well, that's and, why it's
0: a research, and, research. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's why A lot of my
1: work in Cambridge will be trying to understand what tragedy is, what right. makes things tragic. But I do think that that the gospel is a response to tragedy. If that tragedy is grounded in Genesis 3, then we, we really need to make sure we're understanding it as a tragedy. Uh-huh. And I think um, we kind of reform theology, and not necessarily in a bad way, but we are obsessed with, we're very Christocentric. Mm-hmm. And so we, we like to bring everything back to Christ. And I'm not against bringing things back to Christ, but I want to be careful about how we bring back things back okay. to Christ. So oftentimes people think that Christ is the cross. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that the Son of God is the cross. Um, and so I think what Christ did uh, is on the cross.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But if if you imagine a world where there is no sin, mm-hmm. where where uh, God sets things out to, con- gotcha. to continue in a way where yeah. nobody has to sin, um, and it seems like that's the, the way God wanted them to go, then of course you don't... If, if there's no sin to die for, then Christ doesn't come down and die on a cross. right? And so... If I, if I can imagine a world that was choice-worthy, mm-hmm. the, that God would have liked, it seemed like, and set up the world to actually, on a trajectory towards, mm-hmm. that doesn't involve Christ dying on the cross, then I, I need to be able to imagine Christ in a way that isn't
0: necessarily, necessarily
1: that. cross-bound. Okay. Um, and so the, the, the bigger statement that I can make about Christ is that uh, Christ loves the church, mm-hmm. and he would do anything for her. Uh, right and it's not that Christ necessarily every time always dies on the cross because uh, there are there are worlds there's a world in which Adam and Eve don't sin yeah um, and that's where it comes back to is is um, I believe that there's a world where Adam and Eve don't sin gotcha um, and that, that that's because of God's good provision as a good creator mm-hmm. um, that and that's, that's partly what makes it just for him to have punished Adam and Eve, yeah. because it, they really did possess the freedom and the power to not sin. Um, yeah, and and so th- that being said, it, it's what makes uh, the fall tragic, and it, it actually brings so much more depth to the cross as a as a redemptive tool for a real tragedy, not something that God just kind of set up to just look to like make, a problem.
0: and to make. Yeah, just to put his like love on exhibit in that form instead of just like, actually that is uh, instead of, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you have better words for it than I do. Yeah, No, I think (laughs) you
1: said it really, I like the way you put it to put his love on exhibit. Uh There is, I think what, what I'm calling for is we need to be willing to say God is, is bigger than we maybe have been saying he is right. Um, Which sounds really scary,
0: but also in general, I would tend to say that's always a good thing. Yes. If you're I, saying, I think God is bigger than, than yeah. where we imagine, yes, I'm I, on board. Th- yeah, <laughs> and I, think, I think
1: if you can show a way in which there is a, a cogent line of thinking that demonstrates that God is bigger than we've been giving him credit for, yeah. we need to take that seriously. And so yeah. to say that, that the greatest ex- exhibition of God's love mm-hmm. is necessarily on a cross um, limits God's love. Now, mm-hmm. I, it is an incredible exhibition of God's love, but Really, I, I don't limit. I don't think we can limit God's love to the ways He can express it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there's if there's a world in which Adam and Eve don't sin, then I think it's per, perfectly feasible for God to express His love in an abundant uh, way mm-hmm. without having to die on a cross for the sins of the world. Yeah. If there's no sins there to die for. Yeah. Um, in the same way, I, I would argue that, um, you know, most. Uh, kind of Calvinist reformed thinking leans in the way of I say reformed um, I I'm, I'm, I don't know that that's the technical term I'm sure there are reformed people that are not Calvinists but mm-hmm. most of this kind of, um, uh, of of the Luther and the Calvinist Lutheran and Calvinist um, influence on the way we think about God's sovereignty was uh, in response to the Catholic view that that kind of seemed to emphasize more free will mm-hmm. and, and so um, you know, calvin calvinism or the reformation has been largely known for its view on god's sovereignty it's largely criticized um those outside of it Mm -hmm. for having a small view of god's sovereignty right i'm actually saying um i think we i think there's a bigger view of god's sovereignty um yeah you know if if one side is uh god just lets humans have freedom Mm -hmm. um i think Calvinists look at that and say, well, God's not really in control. It's, it's humans doing all the the, mm-hmm. the decision-making. That's just not a very sovereign God. And then their kind of formulation of it, or at least Calvin's, is a kind of God just, uh, there's nothing outside of the purview of God's sovereignty. And kind of everything that is, 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 is the way it is because God chose it to be that way. Right. Um, and he kind of gets, he flirts with the line about like what that means for the fall. He doesn't really want to say it that way. But mm-hmm. he also is kind of like, yeah, God, like did basically decide everything. So yeah. regardless of whether you want to say it or not, that means the fall is included in that. Right. Um, and I would say, I actually think there's a bigger view of God's sovereignty. And this is kind of where my thought project has led me. That is um, when God puts a tree in the garden and says to Adam and Eve, uh, don't eat of it." Mm-hmm. It there is a this is kind of a it's not the only thing that it's doing but the tree is a mechanism for free will mm-hmm. um, it it allows Adam and Eve to willingly obey him or to disobey him mm-hmm. and there are consequences or repercussions on one side and rewards mm-hmm. on the other and the crazy statement is is what if God can get what he wants regardless of what Adam and Eve
0: do and isn't that ultimate sovereignty that is that <laughs> like yeah. that's
1: insane yeah. That, you, he, he doesn't have to undermine freedom, human freedom in the least to get exactly what he wants at the end of the day. Right. And so kind of my big argument is I actually think where we end up in Revelations 21 through 22 mm-hmm. is exactly where we would have ended up if Adam and Eve had not never sinned yeah. or no one had ever sinned. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, the biggest view of God's sovereignty that we could have, uh-huh. that God doesn't need to kind of arrange a timeline where his son you know where human sin and his son right. dies on the cross, and this is the greatest expression of his, his glory, and and it kind of works out to the perfect calculus of God's glory being magnified the most, and it has to be this way. Actually, uh-huh. God can God is that big, yeah. He, he's going to be glorified um, regardless. regardless of what humans do, right? And that's a a scary thought that is kind of alien to people, yeah. Um, but I think it's it actually glorifies God more in some senses.
0: Okay, that's super fascinating. I have a couple questions. Yeah. One, um, are you viewing the fall as a binary event where once they f- fall, there is no return? So so like when the law is given to the Israelites, it's not like they could have just like perfectly followed the law and then returned back to that. Uh, like, um, I guess the question is, are are God's, intercessions throughout the Old Testament ways to redeem um, like back to the kind of like pre-fall way that just failed hmm. or is it that once the fall happens it's just like now you're on the trajectory to Christ on the cross and there's no changing it?
1: yeah I do think it's the second um, and part of what my research is meant to do is it's, it's meant to uncover exactly what the fall did mm-hmm. Um I think the the fall is multifarious and and its effects. There's, I mean, a number of things that happen, and that's made uh, evident in the curses that happen at the fall. But the major one, yeah, that I like, any evangelist probably has to to nail down mm-hmm. um, is that sin or the fall separates us from God, mm-hmm. and that ultimately God's intention for humanity is to be in relationship in right relationship with God. Right. And so, um, when the fall happens. I think, uh, I I think that there needs to be an, an ultimate intercessor that can redeem the relationship eternally, right? Like Jesus does on the cross, right? Um, but that's not to say that God doesn't have uh, intermediate, um, uh, semi-intercessors yeah. that are, allow for humans to experience a sort of right relationship with God gotcha. in the meantime. Okay, uh, but in terms of like where we're going at Revelation twenty two man with God uh-huh once uh, the
0: fall happens it has to be yes. eternally reconciled exactly gotcha yeah. okay cool the second one is something that I the second question is something that I am still don't really understand um, and it's like a very basic thing that I'm like this should I think we should have like a really good answer for this mm-hmm. why is the tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil mm-hmm. um, do you, do you have any insight into that
1: um yes. And I'm not sure why exactly knowledge of good and evil, but I do mm-hmm. think that we've overlooked a large aspect of what is happening um in the fall with, mm-hmm. with it being knowledge of good and evil. Um so kinda one thing uh one thing I've been saying is that the if, if if we kind of look right before the fork in the road, where Adam and Eve, in one one path they sin, and mm-hmm. that like goes down the kind of the trajectory of human history, redemptive history that we've gone down,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, that we are in, and and on the other path is they don't sin, and actually none of their ancestors sin, and um, they, uh, and then sin just doesn't enter the picture.
0: Uh-huh.
1: My my big argument is that both end up in the same place, and so if both end up in the same place then when we look at revelations 21 through 22, we can make, um, clear theological statements about what would have been true if we hadn't sinned. Gotcha. Um, and so one of the, one of the things I think is really fascinating is that, um, humanity is never purged of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, there's never a point where God has to wash us and cleanse us of our knowledge of good and evil. And, and like where yes. we enter
0: into ignorance. Yes. Yeah.
1: There's never a point where, uh, like when, when we go to heaven, the, the fact that we have knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing. Um, and we don't yeah. get there and God's like, well, crap, we got to do something about this knowledge of good and evil. Um, I think that says, uh, I think there's biblical evidence elsewhere. I think revelations has biblical evidence that, uh, we, we possess it ultimately at the at, at the end of the days, um, and I think uh, Genesis three, I think it's Genesis three, uh, talks about they they've taken the fruit and, and they've become like us, uh, in the sense that they possess humanity possesses knowledge of good and evil, like God has knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, um, I believe that's true. I might be misquoting, um, but I think that there's there's strong biblical evidence um, that. Humanity was actually supposed to have knowledge of good and evil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That knowledge of good and evil was actually choice worthy. It's actually a good thing to want.
0: Mm-hmm. Which I
1: think this is this is where it gets fascinating. God yeah. is a good creator, mm-hmm. made Adam and Eve with um, good desires.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: they they don't have anything within them that's off because God has created them perfect. That's right? Not maybe not perfect, but he's created them very well. Yeah. They they still can be glorified. Yeah. But He's he's created them um, not wrong or not lacking.
0: Yeah.
1: And so the fascinating part is when Adam and Eve look at them the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God has actually created them with a desire for that tree that's not wrong because the tree is actually worthy of that desire. Okay. Knowledge and good and evil are good things. Yeah. And so what God's doing is uh, it's not a sinful desire inside of them, but he is creating that mechanism where he's saying, I'm asking you To put off the desire for something that is good Mm -hmm. for a greater desire, which is namely obedience and Mm -hmm. reliance on God. I think, I think maybe, I don't know, I haven't haven't really thought about this, but maybe why it is specifically knowledge of good and evil that the tree has that's the fruit of the tree, is because Adam and Eve don't possess knowledge of good and evil Mm -hmm. in and of themselves to know whether God is being benevolent in withholding that tree from them.
0: Okay. Let me think about that for a second. <laughs> so, okay. Part so, of part of what, sorry, did you want to ask me? No, go me? ahead.
1: I think part of what's fascinating is that if we, if we understand that Adam Eve's desires are good, mm-hmm. they don't, de- they, they didn't walk up to the tree saying, I just think I want to rebel today.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, their desires are good. Uh,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, this gets into, well, what exactly is Satan doing? Yeah. Is he, rearranging their desires where he's taking good desires and putting them in a different order mm-hmm. to tell them, uh, or to get them to do something that they would find regrettable. Um, I think one thing that's fascinating about Satan is that he tells Eve that, uh, God doesn't want her to have this because it will become, uh-huh. it, it, will, it will make her become like God. Yeah. Um, and th- it is true in the sense that knowledge of good and evil is a, a godly quality God mm-hmm. possesses that quality and humanity at this point doesn't
0: yeah
1: and it's actually a quality that God has created them to want to mm-hmm. desire and so it's not wrong but what Satan does is he uses their ignorance about good and evil
0: uh-huh.
1: to tell Eve uh, God might not be might yeah. not have your best interest here yeah and she doesn't know any better yeah she doesn't have good she just <laughs> have the knowledge of good and evil yes and so it creates this interesting dynamic where it, the creature now has to d- decide whether they are going to live into the creator-creature dynamic that they were created in, mm-hmm. as image bearers. Mm-hmm. The, the goal is to represent uh, the one for whom you bear the image, mm-hmm. and and do exactly what God said, or um, to to and I, I don't know what the or is. I don't know if it's if it's Satan successfully. Rearranged the desires so Mm -hmm. that he put the the desire for knowledge of good and evil above Above. the desire for obedience to God. Uh I don't know exactly what happened. Yeah, um, but I don't believe Adam and Eve showed up at the tree intending to do
0: evil. Evil. Um, Okay. So what clicked for me as you were talking is that the Adam and Eve before they so before they eat the uh, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They don't have the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, they don't know if, to some extent, they don't know if God is good or evil, mm-hmm. or like they have no reference frame for yeah. God's goodness, essentially, yeah. to a degree, yeah. right? Um, other than the things they can see, mm-hmm. right? And they're just experience, yeah. Um, which I think puts a really interesting emphasis. It's almost like it's faith. Exactly. Like, they have to live by obedience and, like, directly via faith. Mm -hmm. Trusting that God is who he says he is and that he's a good God.
1: And he's given them all the reasons to believe he is. Right. He's provided for them. There's nothing that – there's no, like, significant bad thing that's happening in the garden that they also have to get over. Right. Like, they they, – but it's true. There is a degree to which – there is a relationship that they know is valid, uh-huh. the creator-creature relationship, uh-huh. and that that's one that God has also designed the rest of the of the time, the cosmos, if you will, right. to mirror. And in so far as He's created Adam um, as a as kind of a, a deputized ruler over creation, and so in the same way that that all of the animals respond to Adam, Adam knows that he's also to respond to God. Yeah, and and so they the ordering. Everything is is kind of pointing back towards this is the way things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that's amiss, but they also don't have the knowledge, the like the objective like uh-huh. faculty about good and evil to make a a good judgment on God's intention or His character. And, and the interesting part is, is I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. Right. Um, at least uh, it, it in this moment. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of of the opinion. I actually think Martin Luther believe this as well, that if Adam and Eve had withstood Satan, I don't know if it like God was gonna just do it like right then and there or after a <laughs> while, but, but at some point if Adam and Eve or their descendants withstand Satan, that God actually grants them the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right. Because ultimately, in Genesis twenty two, we all have knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. So it's God's intention that we possess it. He's created us with that desire. He wants us to order our desires well. Mm-hmm. Um and then he when he gives Adam and Eve the knowledge of good and evil, they then have the knowledge to see that their decision was good and that God is good. Right. And so it creates this kind of cycle of worship yeah. where now they, they believe God on faith Yeah. and on the other side, because of the knowledge it, that, of evil. That, that able decision to is reinforced. Him. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Whereas if the fruit is taken through disobedience the disobedience is reinforced because they've seen the evil that they've exactly. committed. They need
1: knowledge of good and evil on either side. Yeah. To, to, uh, reinforce the either the tragedy of the decision, uh-huh. or the, um, the fact that they they are doing exactly what God right. intended. Like them the, for beauty them to do. the beauty yeah, yeah, yeah. of it. The Yeah. The yeah. goodness. Yeah.
0: Okay. Super fascinating. That that <laughs> was very helpful. I get excited about this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well. And also just like to for people who are listening I feel like this is something that we've learned in Tori and you know everybody experiences this Mm -hmm. but when you start to have this kind of conversation and you it's like you feel the thread right Yeah. you feel there's something in the conversation that's like pulling you somewhere Mm -hmm. and so I have become increasingly more aware of like when that Thread starts tugging, like you mm-hmm. listen to that, and you that's when you start to get excited in the conversation. You yeah. feel like you can you're going somewhere. Yeah. Um, so that's always like what I'm trying to get after in these conversations. And
1: I think I mean one of the things that really clicked for me when you said faith, mm-hmm. uh, another kind of aspect of the project is if we understand that what Jesus is doing on the cross is a response to the greatest tragedy that is the fall. Yeah. Um I I just I don't think that it's a significance that I I don't think that it's insignificant. It ha, it has to be significant that Jesus Christ dies on a tree. Yes. And, and the mechanism for for humans is faith. Yeah. That they have to have faith in in the the son of God's provision on the tree for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. to account for their failure in faith. Yeah. in the garden. Yeah. Um, and this is why I kind of end up leaning more free will, um, is, mm-hmm. is I, for as as much as for as much as the garden was a free decision, yeah, to be disobedient, um, regardless of whether that was a, a, to, through misinformation or deceit. Um, misinformation, there was a, yeah, fake news, yeah, fake news <laughs> from, from Satan. There, there was an element of. I think Eve knew. You know that, that's why there's shame and guilt yeah. afterwards. Is, is it wasn't a totally innocent yeah. uh, decision, um, and I, I think in the in the same way that that was a decision um, based on faith or failure of faith, mm-hmm. the cross has to be a decision based on faith. Um, and, and by the way, I'm not saying like I mean, there's no works here. Yeah, like, yeah. the provision. In the same way that God provided everything in the garden, yeah. God provides everything in redemption. Right, And so all that needs to happen is faith. It's, yeah. it's a sola fides thing. But in the same way that that you fell by a lack of faith, there's redemption via faith. Mm. And I think that that's the only way that you can actually redeem the whole human person. Uh-huh. Um, if, if our... If you just kind of shove people into heaven and you glorify their bodies and like glorify their minds or mm-hmm. glorify their souls, but they the the tool by which they fell is never redeemed. Yeah. Then I don't know that you have whole people or yeah. whole persons in heaven. Um, and and that's just like a personal Yeah. Uh and, and you know, maybe people listening to this would say, Well, yeah, you, you can get a whole person by redeeming it and it doesn't have to be my movement of mm-hmm. my will yeah that the Lord can help you move it and, and I still don't know where grace fits into this yeah um, I'm sure I'm sure it does but there's a, a sliding scale of how much people think you know salvation is is kind of God doing stuff and I just respond and how much God does a lot, but ultimately the balls in my court. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the same way that sin was in human- humanity's court, um, in, in the beginning, I think redemption is ultimately put into humanity's court. Yeah. And that's part of the the beauty of redemption is, yeah. is Christ actually, Christ redeems us, but he allows us to have some um, sense of honor and dignity and, and mm. to, to restore humanity to their prior station. Yeah. You have to restore their honor and dignity. Yeah. Uh, you can't just, you can't just. Pick them up and put them there. Right. There has to be a some, some even small but very small sense of ownership. And
0: yeah.
1: I made this decision. Yeah. In the same way that I've I've failed every all of these other times. Yeah. Um. And that's why I think is beautiful is that ultimately God not doesn't just want people that look like Him that are in right re- relationship with Him but people that are dignified by His ability to bring them to a place where they can, yeah they could enjoin themselves mm-hmm. in God's redemption of them.
0: Yeah. I'm uh, early on oh when you're talking about the cross and the the tree mm-hmm. why um i was thinking of the in in genesis right as god is talking to himself says like we have to kick the reason they have to be kicked out of the garden is so that they can't have the tree of life hmm. because if they had the tree of life after being disobedient that it's like
1: it's the worst it, thing that can happen exactly yeah.
0: but I'm thinking of Christ on the cross being the, the new tree of life, which is offered to us after we offered up to us on the condition of faith, yeah. which is the restoration of the, the thing that we didn't have yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Of like, okay, well, there's these two trees, this tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. God intended, there was a, a t- intended way for God, us to partake of those two things Mm-hmm. we did the wrong thing, but God ended up providing a way for us to, like you said, end up in the same place. Yes. Yeah. And that's by providing us with a tree of life in, in Christ on the cross mm-hmm. much later. But.
1: And and I think even in revelations, the tree of life returns in the, the new, you're Jerusalem, right. Which is yeah. like this weird, like, it, it's like there's a ton of garden imagery so yeah. it's like oh, the, it, this is a new Eden yeah. but it's also a new Jerusalem Yeah. and the tree of life is like at the center Yeah. and Christ is the one that holds the keys to the, the tree of life he is the uh-huh. one that gives people uh, and, and so to reinforce your point it it is through faith in Christ it is through faith in the husband of the bride
0: mm-hmm.
1: that uh, anyone gets to partake in the tree of life and mm-hmm. um, and and so Christ ultimately ends up at the center both both ways. The, yeah. The goal is that the husband in either case always receives his bride. Right. And it's always about the husband receiving his yeah. bride. Uh, but what does it cost? Um, that's where tragedy comes in. Um. And and the blood of the husband being spilled. Yeah. In order to redeem the bride, uh, comes in on one side that it, yeah it doesn't look quite that way on the other.
0: Yeah. Super fascinating. Um. Yeah. Okay, we could probably go on for we a long time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, w- so we've touched on this a little bit, but why is this an important distinction to make?
1: Yes. Um, I think, so I grew up in a in a household where uh, my parents, my dad's like a missionary. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I was always more, I always thought about, Explaining my faith to people who are outside, yeah. Um, and ultimately, I, I believe that, um, because all truth is God's truth, um, and, and God is objectively true, that uh, if we if we kind of clear away all the biases and all the all the things inside of us that would keep us from seeing the truth, and we looked at it, you know, the, the, the systematic theology revealed in the eschaton exactly how it is all the mysteries, all the curtains pulled back. Yeah. Everyone would be able to look at it and say, yeah, that that makes sense. Right. Um, and there were some ways in which I um, I was able to explain things about the, the goodness of God or the character of God or um, the story of redemption to people that made a lot of sense to people and that seemed biblically faithful to me and made sense to me. It's, yeah as an insider, um, as a Christian and made sense to those on the outside looking in, mm-hmm. um, where everyone could look at that picture and say that, that seems good. Yeah. Um, and a, I had an experience in middle school uh, where all of this seemed just so intuitive. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like, oh, of course that's, that's how it works. And, um, and free will seemed intuitive to me, yeah. uh, especially coming from a missionary background. Um, there, there was a sense in which, um, you do have to work with people to get themselves to a place, yeah. where where they can make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I we were, it was actually very it's classical education. I was in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, one of the one of those three. And we had read something. I can't remember what we had read, but we would always we' read and then we would come in and we would discuss. and realistically, it was probably like Calvin or Luther or or something. Um, and so we we would read and we would discuss. And every time the professor or the the, the teacher would, mm-hmm. would kind of give an opening question, yeah. but it was much more directed because we were like middle schoolers, right? And it was something related to the d- does free will exist? Okay. Um, and usually everyone in the class, like all my, me and my buddies, would like it was just so intuitive. We'd all just end up on the same side, <laughs> and we'd just, "The Bible just says that." And it was oftentimes things like baptism or like yeah. Polygamy, like it was like tappens, like, a, yeah, you yeah. know not, because baptism's not a tappin'. Um, I think we were talking about it in the sense of like, is baptism good? Should people get baptized? Like, yeah, of course, yeah, um, or, or things like polytheism, uh, okay. and so it's like, yeah, yeah, all of these things were like, yeah, of course, like, <laughs> and you'd always have a somebody on the other side that would just be like the devil's advocate, right? Yeah, yeah. and they would just get like crapped on <laughs> And so I, I showed up, I remember, and um, basically kind of said the first thing thinking like all the boys are gonna, you know, and I realized very quickly I was the only person in the room. You were the devil's advocate. I was (laughs) the devil's advocate. And it was, um, you know, in middle school, like no one wants to be the guy that stands out. Yeah. And, uh, but I also just remember having this really strong sense that I, I was right and not in like the, I don't think it was like the prideful like, I'm gonna show you guys. Right. Because I genuinely didn't think I was about to convince everybody. Right. But I also had, was going in and out of like, like surely if I just explain myself that like, they'll like, mm-hmm. it's intuitive. They're right. Like I'm reading the Bible, they're reading the Bible, like they'll see. And then, and then I became more aware of like verses about predestination. I was like, well, that's pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. And you know, of course their definition of predestination was very honed in on God's sovereignty happening exactly this way. Right. Um And I remember thinking, I don't know that I could explain this to somebody on the outside. um, Looking in, I, I, and I ended up having a lot of conversations with, with and I know this isn't all Calvinists, um, and, and I say Calvinists like they're like a bad, but <laughs> I, I really respect them. And, and probably most of the people that I, I respect in theology are Calvinists. Uh-huh. So I just know I think differently. Um, but I remember having a lot of conversations with people that were of a more Calvinist leaning. Um, and this this isn't all Calvinists, but what I would call faithful Calvinists, people who understood the tensions between some of the things they were saying about God's goodness or mm-hmm. Um, or the way that you're interpreting that verse, and uh, a lot of them were unable to say things like, "If I, if I could project one message to the entire world,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you got to write what it said, mm-hmm. could you say God loves you' to the whole world?" Right. And a lot of them were in positions where they basically said, "I don't no. think I could say that." Interesting. And I was like, "I, I, um, apart from just other biblical evidence, yeah." Um, and, uh, like a, a general problem with, I don't know that I can call that good, at mm-hmm. least in the sense of, that I think of good or just, at least in the sense that I think of justice. Yeah. And then I think the Bible talks about goodness and justice. Right. Um, I, I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was just in a very big predicament <laughs> and, um, I, I just, I don't know where my work will take me in this. And I don't know if it's, I, it's, it's really evangelism centered mm-hmm. or it's just, it's for scholars and and we just need to be thinking about some things more creatively. Um, I don't know what, what the goal is, but I do think it has massive implications for how we do evangelism and uphold the sovereignty of God.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like part of the aim and part of what interests you about it is that it changes the story. Oh yeah. It's, it changes what the story is about in a way that is makes it more accessible to more people. Yes, and so, I think yeah. To me, I'm like it, that is a worthy. That's a worthy goal. Whether yeah. it, you know, it Whether sounds like right evangel- and it sounds like yeah. That would have applications in, uh, you know, scholasticism and, uh, you know, evangel. Uh, evangelism and uh, probably a bunch of other fields because that it's like, yeah, that is a worthy goal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Well, I hopefully it works out. And, yeah. Uh, I don't, I mean, I do feel like the, the role of a theologian is to alleviate the tensions between doctrine or between uh, tough passages or uh-huh. even doctrines by systematically approaching, how can we caveat this uh-huh. in, a, in a way that's biblically consistent, but, that can, I can show you how these things work out, how, how God's right. mercy and his wrath are both true right. um, and make sense.
0: Yeah,
1: And uh, I'm I, at the end of the day, I'm okay. Like if I get to heaven and God is just like, yeah, there was a lot of mystery. Like I'm going to yeah. be honest, like there are things you couldn't have gotten to just because right. I had not revealed them. I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is when people who are, Paid to be theologians mm-hmm. and professionally do theology, um, don't press the bounds of what is mystery. Uh, or, and when, right. when, when whenever we come up to things, that are like, "Man, that you know that a and not a just can't both exist." Right. But my theology kind of brings me to this point, and yeah. so I'm just gonna punt this to the mystery of God, right, and write a book, right. Uh, and I just I think there's a lot of theology like that out there right now interesting that, that is um, says a lot of really good stuff yeah um, but whether that's through the way we're defining it or the way we're interpreting the yeah. Bible we there are just some places that I think are really problematic where we're saying both A and not A mm-hmm. and um, we kind of just give people a pat on the back and tell them that it's the mystery of God interesting and uh, that would just it would be really suck if we, if we got to heaven and realized we were not only missing something we were we were failing to worship God in a way that He deserved to be worshipped,
0: huh.
1: um, but also we were doing it to the detriment of others who were in real problems. Right. About I don't know that I can I, I'm on the outside looking in and I'm not sure that I can call the Christian God good. Right, and He is, and there's a way to demonstrate that He is, and we just kind of tell them uh, this is just another thing you need to have faith in. Um, right, and and so uh, I think I just think there's too much on the table to not try to be creative yeah. with how we yes. use these doctrines into a coherent systematic whole.
0: Yeah. And I like the use of the word creative because it, it sounds like what you're saying is in a lot of ways, theology has become uh, rigid and unbending Yeah, and like doesn't allow for, maybe it's a fear of being wrong or a fear of being like shamed or something, yeah. but like it doesn't allow for um kind of testing the the edges of what has been discussed
1: yeah or overly rigid in our our biblical exegesis I think sometimes really rigid theology um they just they, they kind of kick verses to you and yeah it's just a lot of times they're out of context a lot of times they are it's like one interpretive decision that's like well clearly that's the only way to read this verse <laughs> um and it it I think there's a lot of verses like on predestination that we need to take seriously. But I mean, as you probably could tell with with what I'm doing, uh, I'm not actually saying there's less sovereignty. I'm saying there's more. Right, <laughs> like, right. That's that. That's the crazy part is there's not just one way to think about God's predestination or action right. or sovereignty. Right. Uh, it it might even be bigger than what you're giving God credit for.
0: Right. You're imagining God's sovereignty in the way that a human might have sovereignty, mm-hmm. and potentially missing something. That's more, yeah, yeah. bigger, yeah, um, yeah. That that is awesome. Um,
1: <laughs> like I said, we could probably, or like <laughs> you said, we could probably go on forever,
0: <laughs> right? Um. Oh shoot! I had a question. Um. Yeah. Well, um, I can't remember my question, but, um, I do think. Um, i am certainly excited for uh kind of what you're going to yeah discover and you are al- it's clear that you already have a comprehensive or not comprehensive but a pretty thorough vision of like where you would like to go hopefully uh, yeah. yeah so that's what i like i hope that the you don't get like shut down once you get there or yeah. do you do you think that you'll have to like narrow in significantly yeah yeah
1: that's why I, my research proposal is um, really the biblical side of Genesis 1 through 3. Um,
0: uh-huh.
1: Trying to find exactly what dynamics are at play, the good dynamics, exactly what happens to those good dynamics in Genesis 3, and then trying to track those through the Bible mm-hmm. um, in terms of how are those things redeemed? Um, what exactly is the cross of Christ doing? How is yeah. it responding to Genesis 3? And, right. And not in a new way. It's not doing something else. It's it's bringing us back to Genesis one through two. Right. Uh, but you have to do really good work in Genesis one through three to figure out exactly what redemption is responding to, and exactly exactly what it's redeeming, and then ultimately kind of taking to the next level or or glorifying. Right. Um, so that's what my research project will be on. Right. But obviously that long term that could like stem out into yeah. all of what we talked about. Are
0: you imagining like a book at some point that would be like laying this out? <laughs> That'd be crazy.
1: It would be. <laughs> that'd be amazing but yeah um, but that'd be a long a long way forward, yeah yeah so <laughs> I don't yeah. want to say anything <laughs> okay I, I, I could do a master's and get totally side so tracked, or, or <laughs> they could be like this isn't even good <laughs> yeah yeah so I, I look for something else that maybe would pay <laughs> yeah but we'll see it, it is it's been valuable to me insofar as um I mean these thoughts are, are my thoughts and, and yeah they've shaped the way I think about God and yeah
0: I remember, it wasn't a question. It was a quote from uh, Francis Bacon, hmm. which is a quote from, I think, like Proverbs maybe. Okay. Um, but it's something, I'm going to butcher it, but that's along right. the lines of like, it's the glory of God to hide things and the the like, glory of man to seek them out or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're talking about like chalking it up to God's mystery, it's like, well, yeah, that's there so that we can kind of like chase after that and even if we're not don't you know discover it fully that's part of our role as humans is to like seek after those mysteries yeah. um, and learn about God in that way yeah yeah um, so absolutely. I absolutely I think that just supports your point well, thank you yeah I appreciate that alright well I feel like we've talked about theology for like 45 minutes okay for I, I, you could have told me it was 20 minutes and <laughs> I mean, would have really <laughs> yeah yeah uh but yeah, thanks for coming on. This yeah. I I really enjoyed this, and uh, it's it may not be the most listened to podcast mm-hmm. just because of the uh, content. It's intense, it's intense. right? Yeah. But uh, it's been one of my favorites. Well,
1: thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, and your questions are um, your there. Your questions are deep and thoughtful, and actually indicates that you you are. Thinking about these ideas probably maybe maybe more than you think you are i don't maybe you've been thinking about them a lot uh, but they, these <laughs> are just the type of questions that, that are, are really good just so trying to follow you. that thread
0: yeah thank you yeah all right jake